think the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous by itself is enough for you to recover, just not drinking and going to meetings. Well, now let me follow it up with another one. And this is about you looking at your actions and going within. If you have not worked these steps and you are not seeking the power, then your actions would tell me that you believe what this says, that just going to meetings and not drinking is sufficient. You hear what I just said? That's something for you to take inside. If your actions on a daily basis are that you are not working these steps, considering the first three steps, writing the inventories, making the amends, and I mean making them, not wishing about them, doing doing 10, doing, doing 11, doing prayer and meditation, then maybe your actions show you that you really do believe just not drinking and going to meetings is enough. How many in the room have unfinished amends they're currently aware of? Now, keep your hands up because those that are going to answer this have to put their hands down. How many of you with your hands up believe that those unfinished amends have anything to do with whether you drink alcohol again or not? Everybody that has their hands up has unfinished amends they're currently aware of. How many of you with unfinished amends believe that those unfinished amends have something to do with drinking booze again? Okay. Now I'll go back, and, and here's, here's another way to answer that. If you believe that those unfinished men's have something to do with drinking again, are your actions showing that you believe that because you're willing to do something about them and you're taking action to do something about them? Or are you just bullshitting me and Joe and yourself? Or is your first step but a memory, and you're trying to muster up the power to finish amends from a memory just like those people you make fun of that think thinking it through on the memory of the pain, isn't that funny that you and I would make fun of people who say think it through because they're going to try to use memory to keep themselves sober, but you're trying to use memory of your first step to finish amends and you've lost the consciousness of your first step rather than now it's just a memory. And you refer to things like, well, when I was in the first step, I saw that, you see what that goes? Well, 14 years ago, when I used to drink, I see that I had this craving and this mental obsession, and I'm drawing on memory. What about the idea that there's nothing I can do to keep myself sober today? And these unfinished amends, or the work I'm currently doing in 10, 11, and 12, is directly connected to my first step. And to have the consciousness of that strong enough to keep you in the step that you're on. Or finish those unfinished amends. Because if unfinished amends aren't directly connected to your first step, they will not be finished because you will settle for the relief and comfort that you've gotten from the ones that you've made. And over and over again, the book on every step is going to connect you to the first step. How many believe the only requirement for membership, you know, a desire to stop drinking, is the only requirement for sobriety? I believed that when I was new until I read a page that says the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail, and I realized the only requirement for membership is just that, the only requirement for membership. And it's not my strongest desire has never been to this day enough to keep me here sober. How many believe they have only two alternatives, to die an alcoholic death or to live on a spiritual basis? How many have three or more alternatives? How many people took action today to live on a spiritual basis? So I can have, like, die an alcoholic death. You know, an alcoholic death doesn't mean, like, going tonight. 
That means like dying an ugly alcoholic death. See, they didn't scare me when I was new. From where I've been, Michigan State Penitentiary, streets of New York, Detroit, Miami, they didn't scare me with to drink is to die. They scared me with you might go on living a long time feeling the way you're feeling. How many believe they're suffering? What was the third alternative? So you have like, uh, you have one alternative to die an alcoholic death or live on a spiritual basis or find the right girlfriend. That wasn't it, was it? Make the right sum of money. The right job. That's dying an alcoholic death. He said being miserable. That's dying an alcoholic death. How many think you, you have to drink to die an alcoholic death in AA? Oh, good. How many believe, how many, oh, well, here's one. How many believe that drinking again can help some alcoholics get free? Or that drinking again is always bad? Aren't there some alcoholics in the room that had to drink again to get to where they are now? Then ten right. more sponsors or ten more lectures or... The big book doesn't say booze is a great persuader. It beats us into a state of reasonableness by mistake. They don't call booze the great persuader by mistake. How many believe lack of power is their real dilemma? How many have some other dilemma other than lack of power? Like low self-esteem, right? Is that it? <laughs> I'll tell you something. You have too much power? Oh, then that's your dilemma. If you had too much power, you wouldn't have low self-esteem. As a matter of fact, if you're working on self-esteem, AA is not a very good place to do it. <laughs> and the truth is, if you come into AA and you've got anything but low self-esteem, you talk to your sociopath. How can you screw all these people over, drink all this alcohol, lie, cheat, and steal, and come here with high self-esteem? There's a group in Southern California they are telling their new people that they shouldn't be ashamed or guilty. I spoke at that group and I told them, if you're new and you lived anything like I did for 18 or 20 years or however many years, and you're not ashamed and guilty, you are a sociopath. <laughs> There's places for people that live like you and I live that don't come here ashamed and guilty. And I'll tell you this, you start that set-aside prayer tonight and tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, as many times as you think of it, and we get through the first step and you're comfortable, there will be no reason to go to the second step. And if it's acceptable, if the first step is acceptable, far from me to be a heretic. But there are thousands of people that stayed sober before page 449 was put in the book. <laughs> and if the first step is acceptable, why would you go to God? You know why I go to God? Because for the first time in my life, over and over and over again, being powerless over alcohol and having an unmanageable life becomes absolutely unacceptable. That's why I go to God. How many think they're powerless over people, places, and things, and the only one they have power to change is themselves? Ah, they've never made an eight-step list. Those that just raised their hands have never made an eight-step list, because if you had, you would see the power you have over people, places, and things, and the utter inability to change yourself. The other thing to consider is where did you get that belief system? And what you're going to find out, it's incredible what your ego does. You sat in some meeting, you heard that catchy phraseology, I don't have any power over people, places, and things. It sounded wonderful, and you believe it. Instead of taking it inside and looking at your experience, because like Joe said, when I made a list of amends, it became very obvious to me there was some power over people, places, and things. 
or I never would have had to make them. And by the time you get to step six and seven, you realize the only one you can't change is yourself. And here's a proposition. If you can change yourself, I'm talking without God. If you can change yourself, then your life must be manageable. And if you're alcoholic and your life is manageable, shit, I bet you got some power over alcohol, too. Because I've never met an alcoholic with a manageable life who didn't have power over alcohol. See, some of you are going to find out this weekend that you're not alcoholic. But you're going to find your own reason to work the steps. I'm going to tell you about a lady I was with for three years. Came to our group, nine years sober. Got free. Got free to work the, the 12 steps based on her problem. How many believe there's only one requirement in the... I'm sorry. How many believe that there is a requirement in the big book before taking the third step? How many believe there's no requirements in the big book? Good. How many believe taking the third step is turning your will and your life over to the care of God? Oh, good. How many believe... Wait, some of you raised your hand. Raise your hand. How many of you think the third step is turning your will and life over to God? Raise your hand. Up, 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 up. I served whiskey and you wanted one, you, your hands would be way the hell up and you Alanons would be dancing like this. If I said, here's a drug for you, right? Let's not be shy. Then why would there be nine more steps? Take the first step, take the second step, make, take the third step, your will and your life turned over to the care of God. How many believe the third step is deciding to turn your will and your life over to the care of God? See? Now we have some grist for the mill. Now we have some things to consider. Now you have a prayer, and now we'll take a break. We'll come back at 9.30. My name's Mark. I'm an alcoholic. A couple comments on some things. There's some absolute incredible, wonderful things happening. A lot of you are confused, which means that your ego has heard some things it has no experience with, so it's at work to make sure you don't hear any more. Uh, some people shared a couple of wonderful comments. Uh, talking to a gal outside, and it's already Sunday, and she's leaving, and she already has a whole bunch of questions about, is she going to take this back with her? So she's not here. It's just awesome. when the, with the I'm telling you, this prayer works. It's wonderful. You'll never have trouble talking to another alcoholic about time travel. Late lady in the front said that there were some other uh, big book studies she'd gone to, and what her mind had told her was uh, that's the only one she could ever go to. Okay, very closed-minded about stuff. We know more about arriving somewhere after our body gets there and getting places before our body ever gets there than any people on the planet. I was in Australia about two weeks before my body got there. I was not at home in Santa Monica. One gentleman came up, and he's asking me questions about amends. Hell, we even got to the title page yet. Follow me. See, most of you are just like me. I'm 50 years old. Most of my life I've never been here. I either got there late or left early. And the, and the only place I experience God is in the being. Being right here. None of us have a problem getting there. We probably all have a problem being here. Right? None of us have a problem getting what we want. It's not about getting what you want. It's about wanting what you got. See, the whole thinking will be shifted. I talked to a guy. He reminded me of a story. Some people need to be told, keep coming back. Some people, that's their problem. So I'm sitting with my little belief system at a meeting in Denver, Colorado, my first 90 days, and I usually hear, anybody new in the room? 
Everybody claps. Somebody new in the room? The leader says, keep coming back. Sounds normal to me. And I'm sitting there one day. There's always a Charlie, right? Thank God for the Charlies that just blow everything you believe. I'm sitting there. Charlie's always new. Everybody at the club knows Charlie's always new. But the lady, the lady leading the meeting doesn't know Charlie. She's from another club. She opens the meeting. Anybody new? A couple people. Charlie. Everybody claps. She says to Charlie, keep coming back. I don't think a thing. Ten minutes later, people are sharing. Charlie raises his hand. He says, I need to say something finally. Would you all quit clapping when I come back because I get more attention when I'm new than when I've been around for a while and quit telling me to keep coming back. That's my problem. I think I can. There's another story about being. Joe goes over to India into the monastery. So the first day they shave his head and they do all that stuff and they have him go through all the kinds of things and then, then they, then they, and the funny piece is this is going to happen, right? But anyhow, <laughs> that evening they, they take him and he eats supper, he eats a bowl of rice, and then they take him to see the Roshi, the, the master. So Joe, being the kind of alcoholic he is, his first question to the master is, Master, how do I become enlightened? And he looked at Joe and he said, have you eaten supper? And Joe said, yes. Then he said, Joe, go wash the bowl. And the moral of the story is, what he's trying to say is, if I'll just do what I'm doing, I'll live, be living in the presence of God. Be. Being. So this weekend, if if your mind either takes you into the past or takes you out of here, just gently say, wash the bowl. It'll bring you back. Those are just tools. The other thing I want to tell you is this. The, the only thing that Joe and I can hope to do is pass on to you with some tools and then maybe you'll have a willingness to pick up the tools and have your own experience. You can't have mine. And AA's questions are not to be answered. They are to be experienced. And experience with God. That's all this program is about. Quit trying to answer these questions. Begin to experience them. Bring them current within your life. Look at the reality. So here's, quit, here's quit trying what, to answer. Here's what becoming awake is about if you have a first step. Guy goes into his teacher. He says, I sat for three months. I can't get it. He said, then go sit for six months. Comes back after six months. He said, I sat for six months and I can't get it. He said, go sit for nine months. He comes back after nine months. He says, I sat for nine months. I can't get it. He said, sit for nine years. He goes and he sits for nine years. He comes back and he says, I can't get it. He says, okay, go sit for nine minutes. And at the end of the nine minutes, if you don't get it, take this dagger and stick it in your heart. And he got it. <laughs> the dagger step one. Or another one. A Zen uh, Roshi walks up to a Buddhist priest on the road, and they come together. Their eyes meet. They walk right up to each other, and they're face to face, and they both sit down in meditation. And they're sitting there with their translators. After about ten minutes, the Zen Roshi pulls out from his robe an orange, and he sticks it in the Buddhist priest's face, and he says, What is it? And he puts it back in his robe. They said another ten minutes, the Buddhist, pre, the Buddhist monk is praying and, and the, the Zen monk is meditating. And about ten minutes later, he pulls out from his robe an orange and he goes, what is it? And he sticks it back in his robe. He does this about five times. Finally, after about the fifth time, he pulls out the orange. He sticks it in the Buddhist face and he says, what is it? And he puts it back in his robe, and the, the, the Buddhist monk leans over to his interpreter and says, Ask that guy what the hell's wrong with him. Hasn't he ever seen an orange before? 
the, mo- the first step. The movement from knowledge to experience is like going from one side of the planet to another, going back to the orange. I could sit here for three hours and describe to you in minute detail the complete history of the orange, how it's grown, how to grow great oranges, blah, 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 blah. Three hours. Give you tons of information, everything you always wanted to know about oranges. And then I could cut the orange and say, take a bite, and you tell me what's is going to give you a, a, a deeper experience and more knowledge about the orange. The experience of taking the bite or the three hours of knowledge and information. This is about an experience. We're here as agents for God. God works through us. God guides us to share with you tools so that you can have your own experience. Taken out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all this is about. And our hope is that when we leave, some of you will get real excited about seeking God. Some of you will really begin to question these incredible belief systems that you picked up sitting in meetings in other places. Some of you will be open to a new experience. And even though it's part of the third step decision that every one of us have considered to be an agent of God, some people would say that to claim that is really arrogant. And I would say this, to not claim it is really arrogant. Because then you just must be an agent of yourself. We're going to get into the big book now, starting with the uh, title page. Ah, but there's seven questions first. Ah. Four on the board, three I forgot to write down. So before the four on the board, ah, but you only see three. Oh, you can't see the fourth one until you see the first three. And before you see the first three, there's three that are hidden. And the three that are hidden are this. And try these questions on the next person you work with and try them yourself before we get to those three. And here's the three questions. Do you want to live? These are the steps before the steps. And I think there's seven. So the first question is, do you want to live? Not not feeling the way I'm feeling I don't want to live. Do you want to live? Yes. I want to live. Because what if the guy says, no, can you go any further? Question number two. Every 12-step call I ever read that Bill and Bob ever went on that's made reference to in our books, they always ask this, do you want to quit drinking? Do you think Bill and Bob ever said one day at a time? Did Bill and Bob ever say one day at a time in any of the 12-step calls you've seen them refer to? I thought they used to ask two questions. Do you want to quit drinking for good and all? And are you really licked this time? I think there's another important question after you ask them, do you want to quit drinking? See, I don't think our founders meant we don't don't drink one day at a time. You know what I think they meant? We don't drink for good and all. And we live life one day at a time. Anybody in this room want to go the rest of your life not drinking one fucking day at a time? (laughs) Excuse my language. So after, do you want to quit drinking? The next logical question, so let's say the guy wants to live, wants to quit drinking, but then answers different to this next question. Can you quit drinking on your own power? What if he says yes? Can you go any further with a guy that thinks he can keep himself sober on his own power? Then we got some more questions that the book raises. 
can you rely on what these people that have written this book say about themselves and the experience you can have? How could you start a process in a book shared through another person if you got any other options? That's what I mean when I say that the work in this book has come to a point where it's something that alcoholics have to decide about nowadays. I'm not going to start a process in this book that I don't have any faith in what these people are saying. But as I read those first few chapters, I started to believe, yes, I believe this program can work for me too. And I am going to bet my life that this process that you say has worked for thousands of people can work for me. Somewhere in the first couple steps, that question needs to be answered. Because like Mark said, you can't say part of this is true and part of it's not. Great question asked at the break. This gentleman asked, when Mark and I say, and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says that you can recover, does that mean cured? Absolutely not. Because over and over and over it's going to remind me that we're not cured. What we really have is a daily reprieve. But I believe there is a fit spiritual condition where you will be placed in a position, in a recovered state of being. Not cured. Not cured. The next one. Do you believe that to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book? We cannot go any further if you don't have an idea that that's what that's the main purpose of this process we're going to go through. You won't. Then one that's mentioned on page 58 and on page 76 that we have people consider as they read the first 164 pages when you start to work with them. Do you want what these people have? Do you want what I have? And are you willing to go to any length to get it? And I don't think, whether it's a guy with 30 years or a guy with 30 minutes or a guy with 30 days, when they're done with this assignment that we give people that comes from the chapter working with others, I don't think what it's going to mean to go to any length should be a mystery. Because I'll tell you, you line up 10 sponsors along the wall. I, that's an interesting picture. <laughs> before, just before you kill them, right? If you line up 10 sponsors against the wall and you ask all 10 of them, if I ask you to take me through this work or I ask you to be my sponsor, what is it going to mean to go to any length? They're all going to have different any lengths. One any length might be you come to my yard every Saturday afternoon at 12 o'clock and clean up and we'll play volleyball and we'll play baseball and you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do that and that might be his any length. My any length might be start this prayer your own way in your own words that what you think you know be set aside and we're going to do what's on the title page through the first 164 pages of this book. But at least you should know what it's going to mean to go to any length if that's what you're agreeing to at the beginning. And then you get to page 76, somewhere around the eighth step, and it says, remember, it was agreed at the beginning. So there must be some kind of agreement here at the beginning that you would go to any length for victory over alcohol. And isn't that funny? The book would trick you into making an agreement that you can't do anything about. Because they're going to trick you into the first step. And they're going to lead you to believe that willing to go to any length to, for a victory over alcohol is something that you can pull off without God. they got to keep you hooked until you're not. 
But then I think there's a consideration. I think it's one of the most overlooked questions even among people that do the work because watch how it changes your whole perception with the rest of the steps. And that's from page... After you've answered, can you keep yourself sober now that you don't want to drink, now that you're willing to go to any length, now that you want to live, see, the questions fit in order. It's for you to drink to die. Because what if you're working with somebody who says, I want to live. I don't ever want to drink again. I cannot keep myself sober. I'm willing to go to any length. I believe what these people have to offer. I believe that I can recover and that the main purpose of this book is to show me precisely how to do that. I cannot keep myself sober, and for me to drink would be to, like, feel bad for a few weeks. And you're going to wonder why when you get people the inventory, they poop out, or why after a fifth step and they feel better because they've unloaded all that stuff, they poop out or they get three-fourths of the way through their amends, and they're feeling better, and they're doing the work based on the unmanageability, and they're doing the work based on an emotional state, because for them to drink would be to feel bad, or they're doing the work based on circumstance, and now that they've got the wife back, and now that they've got the girlfriend, and now that they've got the job, their problem is solved, because it wasn't about drinking again, and drinking again wasn't about dying. And you better believe, if I'm working with somebody, I'm going to know that their first step, and the answers to these questions, and for them to drink is to die just like me and that it won't be about just feeling bad or losing a girlfriend or a little bit of money or another business that their first step at least starts with some kind of admission that they can't keep themselves from drinking and that for them to drink is to die and that's a real real easy one for your ego to very quickly answer so I'm going to take you back into something and I'm going to do a lot this weekend some of you probably have said to yourself while Joe was talking, yes, I believe, I believe that to drink is to die. Well, if you really believe that, then your actions would probably show that there are a lot of people that raised their hands with unfinished amends, right? And some of you probably had those for a long time. Well, if you believe that to drink is to die, if you really believe that, then you would not have raised your hand that you still had unfinished amends. They'd have been finished. Unless the amends don't have anything to do with drinking again. See, it's one thing to answer questions, but if you really want to find out your real belief systems, look at your feet, look at your actions. Your behavior, your actions will always tell you your belief systems. My ego has been lying to me most of my life. When I want to really get in touch with my belief systems, I begin to look at my actions. That really, truly begins to tell me what I really believe. Not the bullshit I tell you. Follow me? So if I'm sitting in here and I believe that to drink is to die, and I have some experience with these steps and I got to amends and I've been sitting on them for year after year after year, maybe I'm lying to myself and I don't believe that anymore. Guy says to me, oh, you mean like, uh, it would be like a spirit, spiritual death. That would probably come first. Oh, you mean it would be like, uh, 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 emotional, an emotional death. No, I mean like to drink is to, you mean you actually mean, now let me get this straight. You mean, you actually mean to drink is to like, like die, die, right? 
Like really die. Well, for some of us it is. He says, oh, you mean like uh, hit and run. A car accident. No, I mean those of us in the room that could sit at home or in a bar or wherever it is we like to drink and not move anywhere and die from drinking alcohol. To drink is to die. And I start to experience this tension that will bring me through the first step. You avoid that tension, you will face it again, either on a bar stool or in the work with somebody you trust, or 3 o'clock in the morning, alone, unable to pray, in a position in your group where you wouldn't dare call anybody and tell them that you're this many years sober and you're wondering if you're alcoholic. Or in the middle of this process, safe and protected, wondering. See, people think, because they're stinking thinking, that anybody anywhere wondering whether they're alcoholic means that they are. Not true. You ever heard that? You wouldn't be wondering if you're alcoholic unless you are. Well, my ex-fiance wondered for a long time whether she was alcoholic or not, and she found out she's not. So we might as well start with that story, and we'll start on the title page. And it's a good story to bring all of us with this, those of us in the room that have that other disease. Some, some of you in the room have it, and you won't admit it, right? Some of you have it, and you're willing to admit it. And the story is it was about a lady that came to our group and across a crowded room, smoke-filled room, she walked into the room and our eyes met. <laughs> and, and she's a blonde, which is like double trouble for me, right? Uh, anybody's willing to ask, I'll tell you where I found that fascination came from. It's not a pretty sight. And our eyes met, and there was this unbelievable connection. She later told me she felt it, too. I wasn't, fan I wasn't just fantasizing. She felt it, and I felt it. And uh, she sat and enjoyed the meeting. And I um, named our children. <laughs> I planned the wedding. I realized why she was going to dump me, and I got so fucking mad at her, I didn't say a word to her after the meeting. <laughs> And she wondered, why with this great connection, I didn't say anything to her after the meeting. Because she had, she, she, I have a mind, she, does, she doesn't have a mind like mine. I had already gotten pissed. You know those relationships you've had in your mind, and you see the person, and, they, and you say, well, we settled that last week. And, then, and she says, well, we didn't talk last week. You go, what do you mean we didn't talk last week? We went through that, and we talked about that, and we settled that, and you've done the whole thing like in your head. Right? These relationships. She comes to our group nine years sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. She doesn't feel real connected. She's nine years sober in AA, thinks that she's alcoholic, and she's wondering. A lot of people would say, stinking thinking. If you're wondering, you are. Nobody's in the room by mistake. And if you're in the room, you're in the right place. That's belief systems people have that don't want to work with another alcoholic to help them find out. You know what? She wasn't in the right place. She sat down with a woman in our group that has what she wants. A woman in our group that has what she wants for the wrong reason. She has what she wants. 
She doesn't, that woman didn't have what she wants. That woman has what she needs. That woman was her problem, not her solution. That'll make sense here in a minute. They started going through the book. They went through the doctor's opinion. There's a solution more about alcoholism. She comes back to this woman's house and she says, I need to tell you something. That does not happen to me with alcohol. But let me tell you what it's like to be around you guys. From daddy to every boyfriend I've ever had. And her eyes light up and her blood starts to flow. You know <laughs> when you're sitting in a living room with another alcoholic and that magic thing happens? She starts to get that talking about being around you and I. A disease that I can't comprehend. Somebody who wants to be around me. Right? And she starts talking about it. She says, that's what I crave. And she starts to tell this woman about a physical craving that an Al-Anon, an untreated Al-Anon gets when they're in their sickness, from the energy of an alcoholic. And she gets free, and she finds the program she belongs in. And she has a great Al-Anon sponsor, Benoit. And she helps other women, and she feels at home, and she's working with people for the first time in all these years in recovery. And she got free. She drinks when she wants to. She doesn't drink when she doesn't want. She'll have a drink and a half. She'll say, she'll say things like, I better stop now. I'm starting to feel it. <laughs> That's a sad disease. She abuses alcohol. She would pour a nice drink and ice and let the ice cube melt in it. Oh. She abuses alcohol. That's alcohol abuse. That is alcohol abuse. Not too long ago, she said, I'm not going to drink anymore because it impedes my spiritual growth. I thought, I've never even entertained a thought like that. And she says, I don't need to, you don't need to understand me. She says, my sponsor and the women that I belong with and the people in Al-Anon need to understand me because I don't understand you. We're sitting with her one night and I come from a group where we've been asking each other questions for 10 years. And my friend Brian loves to ask questions. Brian has no investment in being popular. He has no reason to like anybody in AA, and he's totally free, and he'll ask anyone anything anytime he wants because he cares about people. And he says, now, tell me about this physical craving. She starts to describe. He says, I don't get it. She says, you don't need to. You don't have it. You need to understand your physical craving. He says, well, why do so many of you end up hanging around AA when you're not well before you get to a recovered state in your program? And she got this look on her face like, you big dummy. And she said to him, what would you do to stay in a bar with a free tab? <laughs> she said, you'd even do the work, wouldn't you, to get the lingo to hang around the guys that are your drug? You'd even do the work. She did. She did the work in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous based on a fundamental lie to hang around her drug. And there are people in these rooms by mistake. And if you're in the room, it does not mean you're in the right place. And if you're wondering you're alcoholic, it might be because you are. And it might be because you're not. And if the prayer can take you to a place where you're willing to look at, maybe I am. And for those of us that are a little more sure... Maybe I'm not. Maybe I am has not helped me in years. 
But the first time to find out I really am was not good news, because I'm going to say this to you. I don't know which would be worse, to find out you are or to find out you're not. Because if you're not, there is a human power that can save you. And if you're not, there is no human power that can save you. So don't have any great investment in finding out that you are. Because if you are, you're really screwed. And if you aren't, there's a little more hope for you. I have a question that's kind of back to, uh, for how many of you in here is alcohol your drug of choice? Raise your hands. Is it possible? And, and if, and <laughs> those of you with your hands up, how many of you are alcoholic that say your drug of choice is alcohol? Okay, those of you that are alcoholic, is it possible the drug you think was your drug of choice is your drug of no choice? And you have been fed a line of bullshit bigger than this room that's trying to convince you the drug you have no choice over is your drug of choice. And to use a word like choice with alcohol, for me, my drug of choice was yours. That was my drug of choice. My drug of no choice is alcohol. My drug of choice is Excedrin. I have it up in my room. I'll buy a bottle of it. I'll only take two at a time. I won't hide it around the house. And the shit don't work, I'll never buy it again. That's a drug of choice. All you that raised your hands. Is that you and alcohol? You, you see, you see, I, I'm real glad we're here. And these are not delusions that we're sharing with you based on any kind of theory of what we've learned in AA. These are delusions that we're sharing with you that we've had over and over and over. See, you're not just wondering about whether you're alcoholic or not once. And that doesn't mean it's not going to come back up when you're 20 or 21 or 25. And you're not just going to face that you're agnostic. I thought I was going to, first of all, I thought the chapter to the agnostic had no relevance to me. And then once I saw that I was a big-time agnostic in my first time through the steps, I thought, well, then I'll never be agnostic ever again. They didn't call the chapter, we agnostics. It would say, sometimes agnostic, you know, or uh, only once agnostic, right? Every time through the second step, I have found current agnosticism. None of these propositions will ever be experienced once. And every proposition we bring up, no matter how far along on the spiritual path you are, these propositions will meet you where you are, or you're asleep. Paul Martin, with, with 49 years, says this, and, and it, it, is, it has been my experience, that the steps, which are our method of seeking a relationship with God, will speak to your spiritual condition, irregardless of how long you're sober. About uh, uh, six months ago, I got a call one evening from a, a wonderful woman in Dallas, Texas. She had been sober 30 years, and she had become kind of the uh, resident guru up there with a lot of women, speaking all the time, step studies, doing whatever. And Joe described already the state that she was in where she couldn't tell anyone that she was dying of something. Because her ego must must uh, stay defended all the time, and she must look good in meetings all the time, and sound good, and do whatever. And what had happened is she's one of the was one of these dictatorial sponsors. This is what you wear, and where you go, and what you do. And someone had given her uh, one of my tapes where I talked about going into the insane asylum at nine years sober, dying of untreated alcoholism, and uh, she had promptly taken it from her sponsoree because she only determines what her sponsorees would listen to at that time 
And so she was sitting home one evening, and she was trying to decide whether to take a bottle of pills and commit suicide. And the tape was laying on the coffee table, the tape she had taken away. And she felt guided, and she put the tape in. And she heard me talk about untreated alcoholism, the ego coming back. And that night she called me. And uh, I began to take her through the steps. Uh, this woman, the change in her is absolutely incredible. But also the resistance. Imagine this, a 70-year-old woman, 30 years sober. She's asking a, a young whippersnapper with 13 years to take her through the steps, right? It was it was awesome watching what her ego went through. You think you think there's a little resistance from some of you? You should have seen that the resistance I got from her. But once that cracked, once she once she saw how far removed she'd gotten from her truth about her and alcohol in step one, she she began to seek recovery with the desperation of a drowning man and went back through this experience. And now watching her work with women, and now and and you know she sat there in the midst of all that and really started crying. The reason she started crying, she started speaking in three years sobriety. And the truth is, she's been in an untreated state for 27 years, and that ain't a fun deal. But she started crying as a result of the, the tremendous joy and everything else. One thing she was crying is, why me, why me? And I said, I'll tell you why, Joanne. Because you're going to stand up at podiums now, and you're going to speak. And with your 30 years of sobriety, you're going to reach a whole bunch of men and women sitting in that room that are 20 and 30 and 35 years sober who won't listen to a word i got to say because their damn ego is so defended. And they have such a closed mind, and they're dying of untreated alcoholism the spiritual malady, and guess what? That's exactly what's happened with her. She's being asked to sponsor some people 30, 35 years sober because she, she had the courage to stand up and share her experience with this. So hopefully, again, what we're trying to share with you is is we're trying to share with you some tools. You know, I'm tired of burying alcoholics. I'm not kidding when I tell you a tiny percentage of us sitting in this room are going to die sober. So is all this stuff worth looking at? If you're a real alcoholic, you better believe it's worth looking at. You better believe it's worth looking at. Because the sad news is, if I believe this book and I do, none of us have to ever take a drink again. None of us. One of the things we didn't talk about very long is the answer to the question, do you want we have? That's a real interesting one. If we went around the room and we had you guys write down what this book describes we have, that would be an interesting uh, answer to look at. Because throughout this whole book, it tells you what we have. And it, trust me, it's a hell of a lot more than just not drinking. We have many, many things. But there's so much in here. Let's go to the title page. For lack of a better way, we're going to break the book into sections. We're going to take a section at a time. And this first section is not step one yet. We're not in step one yet. We'll start step one in the morning. And hopefully you'll do some prayer tonight before you go to bed. And tomorrow morning when you wake up asking for an open mind and a new experience, I will, I will leave you with a question tonight you can begin to explore that will bring you into the first part of the first step. But as much as I'd like, to, I'd like to take this section page by page, I think what I'd like to do is that I'll make some comments on this first section, and then Mark will make some comments on this first section, and then we'll close for the evening. And um, after we turn that off, and um, I'm always leery of tapers, um, We'll turn that off, and we'll see if there's <laughs> – uh, that's just my sense of humor. I am just uh, – we'll talk about we'll, – we'll see if there's questions tonight uh, when we're done. But um, this first section, we'll call it section one, we're going to look from the title page up to the doctor's opinion. So we're talking about the title page, the table of contents, the preface – 
the forward to the first, second, and third edition. And I guess the way I'd like you to look at this section is it's just some great general information about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I will tell you this, it's extremely sad that we've lost our circle and our triangle that used to be on this title page because the experience that I had, five and a half months sober, I've been going to meetings for five and a half months, I am uh, uh, four and a half months more sober than I've ever been in 20 years. Never had 30 days in 20 years. So I'm four and a half months past where I've ever been, and I'm loving the meetings, and I'm going to meetings, and I'm going. They say 90, I go to three a day because if one's good, three is better. That's just my my basic philosophy. And I'm loving the meetings, and I got a little place to live. I got a little income. I got a little girlfriend. And I wake up five and a half months away from my last drink, and I'm given the grace of God to see the nature of my condition further away from my last drink than I'd ever been. And that was baffling to a guy who thought alcohol was my problem. And now that I've put it aside for this long, I should be better. And I woke up, and I was page 52. I was the description of untreated alcoholism. Every description in this book of untreated alcoholism, the best one is the middle paragraph on page 52, described me further away from my last drink than I'd ever been in 20 years. I was having trouble with personal relationships, not up to that day. I was having a blast, but God gave me the awareness to see the nature of my, the root of my disease. I was having trouble with personal relationships. I couldn't control my emotions. I was prey to misery and depression. The living I had was not satisfactory. I couldn't be of any help, real help to anybody. Couldn't even help myself. I was full of fear. I was unhappy. I was restless, irritable, and discontented. The spiritual malady that joins every one of us, no matter what our first step is, no matter what disease we have, Al-Anon, addict, overeater, um, sex addict, gambler, uh, alcoholic, they will all relate to the root of the disease, which is a spiritual malady. And at five and a half months, I was in the middle of it, and I called the man I heard in my very first meeting, whose story scared me so bad, because here's what had happened. The miracle of AA had happened in my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where I met somebody who was like me, but he wasn't anymore. And I believe that's the miracle that has to happen for each and every one of us. Because if you just keep finding people that are like you, that haven't been changed, if that's all you and I needed, the county jail would have worked a long time ago for several of us. We don't need someone with a common problem. We need somebody with a common problem and a common solution. And that magic happened in my first meeting, but I'll tell you why he scared me. Because he felt like I felt. He'd been where I'd been. He'd been to the penitentiary. He wondered whether he was an addict or an alcoholic. He had confusion about that. He didn't know the difference between the two. And he said that he found out an answer to a question that I'd lived with since before my first drink. He had had the same question that I had that a lot of you in this room had, and that question that he lived with was, what's wrong with me? And he said that he had found out, and he said that he had changed. And the reason it scared me was because I thought I was going to have to do it. I was going to have to make myself like Don Pritz. And I knew that I couldn't, and it scared me, and I picked somebody the next week, totally opposite from Don. Great guy. I needed Harry. Harry taught me how to uh, pick up women in treatment centers. <laughs> Harry took me all over Denver to meetings. I saw Harry last time I was in Denver. Harry is worse than he was 14 years ago. 
and Harry's on medication. And Harry weighs about 400 pounds. And uh, thank God for Harry. Thank God for Harry. Because at five and a half months, I didn't want what he had. And I didn't want what I had. And I finally saw that Don had not changed himself, that he had been changed. And I was ready because I didn't think I had to make it happen one more time. Because every time I ever tried to make it happen, I failed. And I called him and I went to his house. And he shared with me that night just the circle and triangle. And the whole program opened up to me, a program I wasn't in, suffering from a part of the disease I didn't even know I had. And what do I mean by that? I was dying of untreated alcoholism, the spiritual malady, the unmanageability. I was dying of it. I didn't even know I had it. And I was in a program I wasn't even in because all I was was a member of the unity part of this program. And he talked to me about a three-part program, and I wasn't in recovery or service. And it pissed me off, and I got a little mad, and I said, what do you mean I'm not involved in service? I am taking patients to meetings. He said, oh, you're carrying alcoholics to the message. There's a big difference. And all I could do was carry alcoholics to you because I didn't have a message. And I was not involved in recovery. And he showed me a three-part program with the three legacies that our founders gave us. We didn't even have the second legacy until uh, 1950. Bill ran everything. He was the fellowship. He turned it over to the fellowship when he wrote the 12 traditions and turned the fellowship over to the fellowship. Maybe that's why recovery was so strong. You know there's people involved in service that don't haven't recovered? I took a guy to a general service uh, area assembly. I took a new GSR to an area assembly one time. And all the bigwigs were there, the regional trustee, the local guy, the delegate, and they're all at breakout tables with a specific question. And they went around the table. We were fortunate to be at a table with some bigwigs. And I said, watch this. And I raised a question. And I said, you're all involved in service. And Bill Wilson said that anything that makes carrying the message possible is service. And that we're supposed to be doing service. What's the message? that were in service to carry. And they went around the table, and every one of them had a different idea about what the message was. And I said, why don't we, as an area assembly, have a workshop on what's the message that you're all involved in service to carry? And you would have thought I dropped an H-bomb on that table. Every one of them had a different message. And this man talked to me about unity, recovery, and service, a three-part program with 36 spiritual principles, not 12. You ever heard the traditions are to the group, what the steps are to the individual, and you're sitting there new and you don't care about anybody other than yourself? <laughs> and you say, what in the world are there in the traditions for me? That's just for those guys. And Don said to me, there are as many principles in the traditions for you to practice in your life whenever you're dealing with more than one person as there are in the steps, as there are in the concepts. And the whole program broke open to me, and I wasn't in it. And he also talked to me about a three-part disease, body, mind, and spirit. And he said, there's a part of the program for each part of the disease. You bring your body to the fellowship. We've all heard it. Bring the body, and the mind will follow. Well, they don't say how the mind's going to follow, right? Bring the body to the fellowship, and the mind is going to take you back to a drink. If it's not treated through our recovery process, the mind will follow. 
and follow and follow and follow and follow you right to a bar stool unless treated by a spiritual awakening. And as a result of these steps, you go out into the world and back into the program until they're not separate any longer. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous became whole as I did. I used to say, well, tonight I'm going to go over there and do some service. And tomorrow evening I'm going to do some recovery. And Friday night I'm going to do some fellowship. And one day when I finish my first set of amends, you better believe if I'm involved in the fellowship, it's about recovery and service. And you better believe if I'm involved in recovery, it's about fellowship and service. And if I'm involved in service, it's about recovery and fellowship. And the program became whole as I did. And they told me the promise of the circle was that I could one day become whole and not live in the obsessions of my mind, the, crazy, the cravings of my body, or the spiritual malady that I was dying from in a program I wasn't even in, dying of a part of the disease I didn't even know I had. And if you ever ask me to repeat that ever again, I'm not going to be able to. You know, one of the things I would challenge uh, each of you to do is uh, um, see where you're at about this being whole. Where are you at in recovery? You must know where you're at. That's why I shared with you at the beginning of this, my current experience, exactly where I'm at. I know exactly where I'm at. And that is that you'll know when you're done with the first column. And on coming on the plane here, I know that I'm done with my first column on my resentment inventory. I know exactly where I'm at, living in 10, 11, and 12, my recovery. Unity, of course, is the fellowship, isn't it, right? I do have a home group. I'm a member of that home group. I say that I'm a member of that group. I show up for group consciousness the last Monday night of every month. I'm there. I chair meetings. I help uh, make coffee and serve coffee. So I'm in the unity of this thing. I'm not around it. There's a hell of a difference. Particularly in big cities, we've got some big cities in Dallas, and uh, people breeze into meetings five minutes before, stay for the meeting, and leave. They're not in any. They're just around. Here's an interesting quote from A.A. Comes of Age. The chief inheritance of the first 20 years of Alcoholics Anonymous are the legacies of recovery, unity, and service. By the first, we recover from alcoholism. By the second, we stay together in unity. And by the third, our society functions as it serves its primary purpose, to carry the message to all who need and want it. So I challenge each of you to see where you're at with this. Where are you at in your recovery right now, seeking this relationship with God? Where are you at with the unity? Are you just around it? Do you have a home group? Are you willing to be responsible? You know, after almost 14 years of listening to Fifth Steps and giving a hell of a lot of them, I've come to two or three conclusions. One is that most alcoholics do not want to be responsible at all. Uh, the other is that most just don't want to grow up. You know, and by God, today I'm responsible. I am responsible. I'm responsible for my life. I'm responsible for seeking the power. And by the way, you'll suffer the consequences whether you're responsible or not. You pay a price. There's a price that you're, we're going to pay if we're willing to go through the steps and seek God, which is all that's about. And you're going to pay a price if you don't. You'll pay a price if you're willing to sit when you're real uncomfortable, and you'll pay a price if you don't. There's always a price. You get to decide which price that you want to pay, but you must assume the responsibility of it. It's no different than belief. I believe that to drink is to die. Then you better assume the responsibility of that belief. If you believe that, if you're a real alcoholic, you'd move through all those damn amends, and wouldn't you? 
Don't do the work in this book if you want to be popular back where you live. There's some people here you can talk to about that, Melvin, Jason, and a few others. Yeah, if your desire is to be popular in Alcoholics Anonymous, please don't do this. Because you won't be. Ask Sydney, who lives in the Bronx. Right. He cares more about alcoholics than being popular. <laughs> and be real careful. I wanted to bring this up earlier. This is something to consider. Are you doing what the majority do in AA? You better not. You better be real careful. You're not doing what the majority do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what nowadays? The majority is one of the biggest distractions. Well, you got a meeting over here with 40 people, and they're talking about this weird stuff in this book. It doesn't even sound like AA over here. you got 2,000 people at this meeting where they can't even see that people are dying on a weekly basis because the the, the the destructive force of the majority. And you know why I don't want to do what the majority in AA do? Because the majority in AA drink. Do you think 51% or more stay sober? So be real careful. You're not doing what the majority do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll even present you with this idea. Maybe we can talk about it later. AA doesn't work. It's real easy for the 7 or 8% of us that are sitting here that it's worked for to say that AA works really well. What if we were in the rooms where the 92% that it didn't work for were? What would, their, what would they be saying? AA doesn't work that well anymore. The recovery process in Alcoholics Anonymous works really well. I've worked with 200 people. I can now say this because I have my own experience. This isn't about who Don worked with or Gary or how many Paul. I have sat, and this is not bragging. This is not about what I can do. If it was what I can do, I'd have a whole other deal that people would be doing, and it would involve naked third steps and they would <laughs> turning all their money over to me. Just with the women. Don't get worried. Okay? It would involve turning all your belongings over to me. It would involve. It would be a program to be beyond all programs. What I'm going to share with you is not a testament to what I can do. I can't keep myself sober, but I have sat in my living room with 200 people, one at a time that made it to the ninth step. I can't tell you how many I've sat with that pooped out in eight or four or five or one or the first step scared. I have kept track for certain reasons. I call them on there. I don't sponsor 200 people. I've kept track. <laughs> I call them on their birthdays, and I keep track for my own personal reasons. Of 200 people that made it to the ninth step, do I know all 200 have finished amends? No, I don't. 200 that made it to the ninth step in the last 13 years, Two drank. Now, the 198, their stories are not worth me telling. They have their own and they're doing their own thing. The two that didn't make it, the stories need to be told because they can't tell them. One fell victim to the delusion that you do the first nine steps once. You live your life in 10, 11, and 12. He got angrier and angrier. And every time I would return to Denver, this was in my first four years before I moved to Santa Monica. I was four years sober in Denver and Ten year, I've been ten years in Santa Monica. Every time I would return to Denver, he was a little angrier, and he became adamant about, I am not doing that work. Started working in the field of alcoholism, AIDS, projects, hookers, pimps, needles, 
one day had no thought about sticking a needle in his arm and was dead in three months. The other one was in the last ten years in Santa Monica and he refused to finish his first set of amends and became adamant about, I'm not making that one and I'm not making that one and I'm not making that one. Just like some of you in this room tonight and you don't even know you're adamant. You just are. And he refused to finish him and he drank and he can't get back. Last time I saw him, he thought it was really cute. He and I had the same sobriety date, August 17th. He thought that was really nifty. And I said, because you think that's really nifty, you're not going to be able to keep that date. And he couldn't. He'll get six days, 17 days, two months. And he's a famous comedian. Gets nothing but praise and applause and adulation everywhere he goes. And nobody will tell him the truth. And he comes to meetings and they pat him on the back and they tell him how great he's doing. We're loving alcoholics to death and alcoholics anonymous. Let us love you so you can love yourself a little bit more? No. They said to me, you love yourself a little too much, and you better start loving some other people so you don't love yourself quite so damn much. If it's not obvious by now, Mark and I are not victims of low self-esteem. We are sufferers of just a little too much self-esteem from time to time on a regular basis. Like all of, like all of you. Let's look at the table of contents. It was very embarrassing for me at three years uh, when I sat down with Don and I was asked where step one was. And uh, I had to finally fess up that I didn't know because, of course, the big book, first time it's real clear, it says being convinced <clears throat> we're at step three, right? So common sense ought to tell me that everything in the big book up till there is one and two. Wait, that's too simple. That's far too simple. You mean that if the big book tells see, because from step three on, it's simple. They actually tell you, now you're at step three, here's step four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. But you actually mean that when they tell you that you're at step three, and this is a textbook, everything up to step three could be steps one and two? Oh, okay. Now, when you look at that, Joe's already mentioned the preface and the three forwards are just about general information of Alcoholics Anonymous. And starting with the doctor's opinion, we're going to start looking at step one. Bill's story is going to talk about the physical craving, the body. And we're going to look at that up through the doctor's opinion through page 23. Bill's, Bill's story will also have a great descriptions of the mental obsession the spiritual malady, and what's going to be necessary to recover as far as going to any lengths in, in his recovery, 9 to 16. I think there's three times you should look at Bill's story, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Then under there's a solution, we're going to look at the mental obsession, the mind, pages 23 through 43. So we've only looked at, the, but at that point in time, then you spent 53 pages in the big book, we've only looked at the first half of step one, an illness of body and mind. In more about alcoholism, we're going to look at the unmanageability of the spirituality on pages 44, 45, and one paragraph on page 52. And we agnostic. I'm sorry, and we agnostic, yes. We're going to look at step two, and we agnostics up through the ABCs. And then, of course, from there on, the big book tells us exactly where we're going to, where we're going to be in the steps. We'll use working with others for the first part of step 12, and we'll use the other, the other three, the other four chapters of practicing these principles in all your affairs. So here, this is interesting. Basically, the big book is going to spend the 10 pages of the doctor's opinion, 
some information up through page 52 to look at step one. That's 62 pages, right? 62 out of 164 on one step. But but even if you just if you just looked at the 12 steps outside the last four chapters, the big book is going to spend about 62 pages on step one and about 40 or 50 pages in the next 11 steps. I wonder why they do that. You think two through 12 are about the truth in one? Because I submit to you that if I that if you believe this book and this big book says we're self well run riot. Steps 2 through 12 are acts against the will. Nobody in this room will do 2 through 12 unless you find out your truth in step 1. So maybe that's why the book says that the spiritual arts through which you're going to walk through step 1 is the foundation of this whole thing. First paragraph of the preface talks about uh, 300,000 copies of the book from 39 to 55. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. It's an interesting statistic we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, basically, it's told you about the growth when the first edition appeared. And I think the most important word on this page is the word text, that you should get across to the person you're working with that this is a textbook. And I love Joe and Charlie's definition of a textbook, and they take it one step further when they say, a book designed to transmit an experience to recover from alcoholism. And a textbook is meant to be done in order. You ever been to one of those meetings where they'll tell a brand new guy, go home and read how it works, and he comes back the next week and his eyes are permanently crossed and he's totally confused? Right? He went home and tried to read algebra before he had any kind of addition or subtraction. The first portion of this book describes the AA recovery program. I'll tell you an interesting page. I wish I had it. I would probably encourage Mark to put it in the book that he uses for these things, but on your paper cover... Anybody still have a paper cover? You know that page that you throw away? On that paper cover, on the inside one, on the first one when you open your book, the third paragraph on the paper cover tells you three really interesting, uh, two really interesting things. It tells you that the first 164 pages of this book is the AA message. It also tells you that the fellowship was named after the book. And I didn't know either of those things. So next time, before you throw your paper cover away, like I always do, read that insert on the paper cover and see those two very important facts that should be shared with somebody new like me so they know where the AA message is and they know that this out here was named after this here. They tell you about each part of the book. The doctor's opinion has been kept intact, just as it was originally written. The second edition added the appendices, the 12 traditions, the directions for getting in touch with AA. The chief change was made in the stories. Some were left intact. Some were retitled. I'm going to tell you an interesting experience I had. This past summer, I got to go to Stepping Stone. It's a house in New York, upstate, um, where Bill and Lois lived. It's a little country home, and then there's a... The whole upstairs is in archives. I could have spent six years in there upstairs with little articles and everything. Bill, you can see all the books that influenced Bill. And, well, he read a lot of stuff. He was very open uh, to uh, thank God. Uh, and then the downstairs, and I got to sit at the table that Ebby 12-step Bill at, and I started to cry. They brought that table up from Brooklyn. And I sat it in the presence in that kitchen. Then they took me out to this little one-room house. 
up the hill a little ways that Bill called Wits End. If you ever you ever see Pass It On, that, that green book, Bill's autobiography, and turn to the back, it's got Bill sitting at a desk looking out a window. I sat at that desk where he wrote a lot of our stuff, and the caretaker who runs the place brought out the first red book ever printed that Bill gave to Lois. And I'm like just, I'm blown away. And I opened, he let me, he brought it out of this case and he let me open it. And I opened it and there was an inscription to Lois. And it talked about, um, you stood by me in the dark times. Uh, these pages wouldn't have been possible without you. This is the first book off the press. I wanted you to have it, your loving husband. Then there was another one I can't really remember. But what blew my mind was I turned to the table of contents and Lois, as only an Al-Anon could, she wrote a little box in the upper right-hand corner of the table of contents. And in that little box, she put zero, one, and three. And next to zero, she put stayed sober. And next to one, she put slipped and came back. And next to three, she put didn't make it. And next to each story in the table of contents, she not only put the author's name, which is impossible to find out, and I'll tell you why, she put the author's name and she put zero, one, or three next to it. And there was about ten numbers. And the caretaker let me copy it onto a piece of paper that I want to put into my red book because I collect first editions. I want to get all 16 of them that were printed from 39 to 55, and then I want to give them away one at a time. And um, I got uh, five more to get. I got 11. And um, he let me copy that. And there were about ten number threes. And you know why it's so hard, I think, to find out? Because it's even hard from our, our archivists. I'm friends with, I know Frank in the general service office, and they don't want you to know. They don't want you to know the names of the authors. And they'll give you their own reasons, but I think it's because they don't want you to know that all, they want you to continue to believe that everybody that wrote those stories stayed sober. And they didn't. And I saw that in that first book that Bill gave to Lois. They'll try to tell you the first woman in AA was uh, Marty Mann. The first woman in AA blew her head off. Marty Mann came up with a real interesting test because I read her personal book, the first edition of her book. If you ever get a chance to see it, I don't know if it was reprinted or not, but the book is called Marty Mann's Primer on Alcoholism. And in that book I read, we were always told in Denver, Marty Mann test was two drinks a day for 30 days. In her book, she says, if somebody doesn't think they're alcoholic, suggest two drinks a day for six months. No more, no less. Marty Mann was an amazing woman. She also founded the National Council on Alcoholism, and she also ran a treatment center that I got to speak at that same week called High Watch Farm, where they kept Debbie for a long time. And um, I got to speak there at their Saturday night meeting. And... Um, there's a real exciting man running that place. Mark had a conversation with him on the phone not too long ago who's really uh, into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, they don't call it a treatment center, and they don't call them patients. They call them guests. So, of course, I had to make a joke, and when I got up to speak, I said, uh, having been a patient in 10 treatment centers, I like the sound of guest a lot better than patient. <laughs> There's a couple things in in the forwards. Uh, one of them, if you want to look at your book, uh, it's it's uh, XVI, uh, and this ties back again about the importance that we're trying to stress based on our experiences. Step one, but it, he, at the bottom of the page, he's saying this physician, Doctor Bob, of course, 
Now, this is interesting. He had repeatedly tried spiritual means, his solution then, to resolve his alcoholic dilemma, but it failed. But when Bill gave him, gave Dr. Bob, the description of alcoholism and its hopelessness, step one, then Dr. Bob began to pursue the spiritual remedy for his malady with the willingness he'd never before been able to muster. I have to know what is wrong with me before I'll get the willingness to pursue the solution, step one. That's why the book spends so much time. I've done too much, too much work with people in AA who barely even begin to touch step one, tried to seek the solution, pooped out in amends, pooped out in inventory, wouldn't do prayer and meditation, wouldn't work with others, wouldn't finish the last four chapters. It all hinged back to step one every single time. See, they only had six steps that are in our book. They're on page 292. Neither one of them, when given that solution, could stay sober until they were given the first step. Because you can see on 292, the basic principles of our steps are in there except the problem. All they knew about the first step was that our egos needed to be deflated. Then on uh, XVII, it says, uh, it also indicated strenuous work. One alcoholic with another was vital to permanent recovery. Huh. Interesting word, strenuous. We like that word, don't we? Permanent recovery. The work in AA is not the steps, but taking people through the steps. That's the work in AA. My sponsor hates it when we talk about doing the work as to one through nine. Drives him crazy because he says the work of Alcoholics Anonymous is 12 and one through 11 gets you ready to do the work. He doesn't like that little phrase we use, doing the work. Over in XX, uh, page 20 on the Roman numerals. This backs to, this made these impressions everywhere of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried. Boy, you could, you could take the words really tried into meditation for a while and ask yourself what they meant, huh? But here's the promise, 50% got sober at once and they remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Now, let me share a personal experience. I've been working at a jitter joint for five years, working in what they call the alumni department for three. And what happened is in about June of 93, I was approached. I was uh, um, doing some stuff just in terms of trying to track people and do a bunch of other stuff. Anyhow, what they did is they approached me and they said, would you be willing to do something with the big book? with some of these people while we're here. Because prior to that, this treatment center had really only attempted to do clinical stuff. And our recovery rate was about 6%. And I said that I would do that, that that could not be a part of my job description, but that I would do that because I'd have to do that for free. And they said, well, okay, would you be willing to do that? And I said, yes. Now, I want to tell you what's happened. It's three years later. June was three years that we started this. Now there's myself and, and, and three other people, and we track recovery rate because when these people leave, we stay in touch with them. We track it at 90 days, and we track it at one year, and we've got a three-year history. And I'm talking about a 1,000 people a year come through this treatment center. We just did this again last month. And this, these are what the figures of the people who leave this place because we talk to them about this. 51 at the end, we, we just completed another 90 day in one year. 51% were sober at the end of 90 days. Now that's about 80 a month leaving there. 
So that's about 240 people who left. 51% were sober. 24 had some relapse and were back on track. And then we did our one-year survey. This is one year out of treatment. 48% were sober with no relapse. And about another 27 had relapsed and were back on track again. Now, what is that a testimony to? That's a testimony to that when you bring people to recovery, that this thing works. That's what it is. When you bring them to recovery, not to fellowship, bring them to recovery. Talk to them about this. The fatal, the failed illness, what's wrong with them? And the solution for it. And begin to point them down a path. So I certainly have a lot of experience with, with what this book says and the fact that, that if I'll do this, it works. And I always stress the words really tried. To add to that, let's go back to the preface, page XI, to that statistic I asked you to make note of, where it says between 1939 and the following 16 years, 300,000 copies of the book went into circulation. Ah, let's go to page XV, the forward to the second edition, and see what it says about those 300,000 books that went out. Uh, second paragraph. Sixteen years have elapsed since our first printing in 1939 of the book, and, the, and now in the presentation in 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, we're talking 16 years, and uh, 300,000 copies of the book, 150,000 recovered. One recovered for every two books. <laughs> Do you think that's what it is today, of the number of books? That, were, that are printed in the last 16 years? Another question. Where's the first promise in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? What's the first promise? What is the first promise? Ah. I have a question. There's people that tell you there's only 12 and they're not until page 83 and you're sitting in the back of the room saying, you mean I'm not going to get any of the promises of AA until I'm halfway through a step I'm never going to get to? You know, a bunch of you raised your hands that you'd always be recovering. My question for you is, don't you must not believe this book. I mean, the title page says, this is a story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. It doesn't say it's a story of how many thousands of men and women are recovering. And keep in mind, they made that statement with nobody with more than five years. So you don't believe this book then? You're, you believe parts of the book. Some of it's okay. Or maybe your truth is just like mine and Joe's. You sat in meetings and heard, heard this modesty about recovery. Another friend of ours, I like the way he says this, he said, Have you noticed most people that say they're recovering aren't? He said, It's a modesty our founding fathers don't have. It's kind of like the word sick. You know when the big book uses the word sick? They're talking about the illness of body and mind. When you're a lying, cheating son of a bitch, don't use sick as a reason for being that. I'm not sick. I have an illness of the body and the mind, right? I'm not sick. If I tell you I'm going to be somewhere at 8 and I don't show up, it's not because I'm sick. It's because I'm a lying son of a bitch. Oh, I'm just recovering and I'm sick. That's why I'm cheating on my wife, screwing my employer, not paying the IRS, and lying to you. And Bullshit. There's, there's, if there's lines in the book that will help you get well if you do those instructions, there's lines in the book to help you stay sick. And one of the ones my ego will go to when anybody calls me on anything that, I don't, that makes me uncomfortable, you know the line that I'll go to? Progress, not perfection. 
He's used it. <laughs> we all have. We call him Sunshine. You'll have to ask him why. We were in a meeting. <laughs> we were in a meeting in Staten Island. How many are here from Staten Island? Right. We were in a meeting in Staten Island, and Sunshine was talking about. I forgot what the guy who was sharing was talking about, but he 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 started to share. I forget his first name because I just call him Sunshine. What's your first name? I forget. Brian. Brian started to share, and he said um, something about, I don't know how long you're sober, but if you don't quit blowing sunshine up these people's asses, <laughs> it's like, so we call him Sunshine. Right? Each day, somewhere in the world, recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing an experience, strength, and hope. Let's stop there tonight. So before...